So if you would turn to Psalm chapter 31, and I'm just going to read that. Uh, For those who don't know, my name is Vernon. Um, I have the privilege of uh, being uh, the missions pastor and uh, serving here on staff, and it's just an honor for me tonight to be able to share with you guys from the Word of God, and, um, and just thankful to, for the opportunity to be able to do that. So let's just read Psalm 31, and then we'll go back through it and see what the Lord would like to say to us tonight. <clears throat> Psalm 31, verse 1, David says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I have hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side, while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for for those who trust in you, in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in your secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice in my supplications when I cried out to you. O love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And the title tonight of the, of the message is Trust and Dependence in Trials. And, you know, this psalm, as hopefully you saw in reading it, is a desperate cry by David for help. He's calling out to the Lord for help. He's in a desperate situation. He found himself in a place of severe trial. And as a result, he's in great need of help. He's in need of the Lord to come to his aid. Now, we're not told the occasion for the writing of the psalm. uh, Some think perhaps it's the time when Absalom rebelled against him, but we're not told that. And I think it's kind of for good reason, because, because we don't know the specifics of why. We can just take what David's going through, and we can say, yeah, that could apply to my life. 
You know, I may not be, because none of us are a king, right, being rebelled against, so we could dismiss it, but we can't dismiss this. This is a trial. This is something severe that he's going through, and so it has application to us. Um, The psalm is also a declaration of dependence. You know, David realized his only source for help or for hope was in God. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about the psalms, all of them, is that there's a lot of just raw emotion in, the, in, these, in these poems that are written here. There's just the human heart being poured out before the Lord. And, the, and you can see the, 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 the grief and the struggle and the battle that wages on. And, and we can relate to it. Um, and so that's what is happening here. The psalmist, David, is pouring out his heart to the Lord and expressing his dire situation. He's crying out to God for help. So there are many lessons I think we can learn about facing trials and walking through them in a way that honors God. And I hope that that's what happens here tonight as we look at this psalm, is that we can learn some lessons about how to face trials and how to walk through them in a way that honors the Lord. And so the first four verses um, are a declaration of dependence and petitions for help. That's the first four verses here. And we see in verse 1, the first part of it, David says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. David begins by making a simple declaration. Just, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. In you, O Lord, do I trust. He's declaring his complete dependence on the Lord. Right in the very beginning, David was looking to God alone, and he was all in on trusting God. It was all God or nothing was his attitude. Um, You know, Scripture is full of examples like this. You know, from Noah, all the way through the apostles, we find people who were all in on trusting the Lord. They had put themselves in a place of total dependence upon God, so much so that if the Lord didn't show up, if he didn't come through, they had no backup plan. There wasn't a a plan B for their situation. They were depending solely on the Lord to show up, and that's what we see David here. We see him totally dependent on the Lord. And You know, I think the all-in mindset is really at the core of true faith, as as spoken of in the Bible. The Lord wants us to be fully dependent, fully trusting in Him. He doesn't want us to have other options, you know, backup plans for our situation. He wants us to be fully in and trusting Him. Hebrews 11.6, a very familiar verse to many of us. Uh, There the writer of Hebrews says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith is important to God. He wants us to be all in and trusting him. And the, the, what the Lord promises there to us is that he's going to reward that. He's going to reward seeking him. He's going to reward trusting him. He's going to bless us for doing so. So David begins there in the very first part of this psalm is with a declaration of dependence. Again, he says, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. And he just emphatically declares that that's where his trust is at. Now, what follows in these next few verses is some petitions that David makes. In the last half of verse 1, David makes the petition. He begins by asking, let me never be ashamed. So David knew that by depending on God alone, he had no need to, f- to fear being ashamed. David said this in Psalm 22, verses 4 and 5. He said, Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. 
They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. And so David knew from experience, from the history of his nation and what God had done in his father's lives, that they were all in and trusting God, that they had cast everything upon him and that they were not ashamed for doing so. They never regretted the fact for trusting the Lord. And I think, you know, this statement by David is probably just as much a reminder to himself as it is a request. David knew he wasn't going to be ashamed for trusting God. But I think he's also reminding himself that that's true, that I will not be ashamed by putting my trust in you. And I think it's important for him, it's important for us to remind ourselves of that. You know, you and I must never be concerned about being all in for the Lord and him being our only option, our only place of trust. You know, the world is going to try to make us feel ashamed for trusting the Lord, right? I mean, the world mocks the idea, what, you, you look to the Bible and to the Word of God for how you should live your life? How foolish, they say. You know, and they mock and they try to shame us and, and they say, why? And they question it and the enemy comes and tries to tell us, you're going to be ashamed. You know, quit this, quit trusting God. And, but we know from the Word of God, we know from our lives and those who've gone before us that we're not going to be ashamed. There will never be shame for trusting the Lord. Now, I'd imagine you're like me in the case that there's probably many things you can think of in your life you wish you had never done, right? I mean, there's things that we, if we start to think about it, that we go through like, wow, I'm ashamed of that. I wish I had never done that. In fact, you know, tonight in worship, I was thinking of a couple things just in recent months in my life. I was like, Lord, please forgive me. I'm ashamed that that's how I responded to that. But when it comes to trusting the Lord, we're never going to be ashamed. We're never going to regret it. And so we need to just put our trust fully in him. You know, Romans 10, 11 says it this way. It says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. We'll never be put to shame for believing and trusting in Christ. When we come to the end of our days, when we pass from this life to the next, we're not going to have regret. We're not going to be embarrassed that we trusted the Lord. We're going to be fully confident and we're going to be at peace because our trust was in him. So David's first request there was, let me never be ashamed. Secondly, his next petition is, deliver me in your righteousness. And we see that there at the end of verse 1. And so the basis for all David's request in this psalm is found in the righteousness of the Lord. He's dependent upon God's righteousness. He realizes that it's the Lord who's righteous, right? <clears throat> you know, it's not his righteousness. And so David's request, his appeal to God here, is based on the fact that, of who God is, not based on the fact of he deserves it. He, he didn't come to God and say, you owe me. You owe me. I've served you, and so you owe this to me. No, he came and appealed to God on the basis of God's righteousness, and so, and in, you know, in fact, later on in this psalm, we'll come to it in a little bit, you know, David acknowledges that some sin in his life, that there was sin. And it's not quite clear whether it's currently something or it was something in the past that he's remembering, but we'll talk about that in a moment. So he's not coming based on his own righteousness. He's coming based upon the Lord and his righteousness. And, you know, this is the humble and correct basis for us to come to God for help. We must always come to the Lord for help with the attitude in the heart 
is I don't deserve this, but Lord, help me and have mercy upon me. And, you know, because the truth is, and we know this, God doesn't owe us anything, you know, yet because he's righteous, he will help because he's righteous. He will help us. So, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're given some good news. <laughs> you know, David didn't have this, but we do. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, we now have been given the righteousness of God in Christ. We are righteous before him. And again, it's not, like, I'm not trying to say we deserve his help, but when he sees us and he looks at us, he sees Christ. He sees his righteousness. And so obviously a righteousness far superior to anything we can do. In our best day, we can't even come close to the righteousness that we've been given in Christ and what he's given to us by his death on the cross. So David appeals to God here. His second appeal is, deliver me, Lord, in your righteousness. And then that brings us to his third appeal. There at the beginning of verse 2, where he says, bow down your ear to me. And so David, it's a word picture here. And this request really is rooted in humility. It's a humble request. And I love the word picture that he's using here. He's realizing that God is not on his level. God is in heaven. He's above. And David's realizing that he needs God to bow down his ear to hear, to hear his request. And so it's rooted in, again, this humble attitude. Again, not saying, God, you owe me one. You know, where are you at? No, it's God, please bend down your ear to hear. Hear my request, Lord. And you know, Psalm 144.3 uh, says it this way. It says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you're mindful of him? And I think understanding this is key to our walk with the Lord is that the Lord is in heaven. He's above. He's not on our level. And yet he is willing to bend down. He's willing to come close to us and to hear our request. And so, his third request is, bow down your ear to me, Lord. Come to me and help me. And then his fourth request, deliver speedily, is what he says. He says, deliver me speedily there in verse 2. And, you know, some things never change, right? I mean, from the beginning of time till the day, that's a common desire when you're in a trial is, Lord, do this quickly. I, I want speed, Lord. Um, I don't want delay. I want speed. And you know, I, I highly doubt that anyone has ever prayed, Lord, take your time. I can, I'm pretty sure that no one has ever said that to the Lord. Lord, take your time. It's okay. You know, no, speedily, Lord, come quickly and, and act on my behalf. And so, you know, nothing wrong with the request. There's nothing wrong with ask, asking for God to move quickly. The Lord understands that desire. The problem, though, becomes when we become impatient because God isn't moving quickly. And we can then get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. We can start to doubt the Lord. We can start to try to help him out, right? Like we've been seeing in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah fell into that trap because God wasn't moving speedily. They tried to help God out. And just like them, when we do that, we get ourselves into trouble when we try to help God out and we get impatient with his timetable. And so we have to be patient. But again, there's nothing wrong with asking the Lord to move quick. And he understands. He understands the motivation for that. 
I think <clears throat> Jeremiah has some wise advice for us in Lamentations 3, uh, 25 and 26. Jeremiah says, and of course, this is, you know, a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, knowing the Babylon has destroyed them, they've gone through a lot, a lot of horrors and a lot of problems. Now, many of them have been taken into captivity. And Jeremiah knows that what's ahead is 70 years of captivity. He knows that there's a long time ahead. And Jeremiah says this, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And so the trial may be severe in our lives, but it is good that we wait quietly, even if it's hard for us, even if we want it to come quick. It's good that we wait quietly for the Lord. And Jeremiah had learned that lesson. Things weren't like he wanted them to be. I mean, he had seen the nation he loved refuse to repent. He had seen them turn their back on the Lord, and he suffered greatly for telling them that judgment was coming. And, and now he's seen that it's come, and yet he's still waiting for the Lord and, and trusting him, and that's what the Lord wants us to do. So his fourth request is deliver speedily. And then there, <clears throat> further on in verse 2, is he says, be my place of safety, basically is what he's saying when he says, be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense, to save me. David asked the Lord to be his rock of refuge, a, a, a fortress of defense. And that word refuge just simply means a place of, of safety, of protection. And so David makes this request, Lord, be my rock of refuge, be a fortress of defense to save me. And that phrase there, fortress of defense, some of you may have this in the footnotes of your Bible, but it literally means a house of fortresses. <laughs> It wasn't just one fortress, but be a house of fortresses to me. David is, and this is what David's calling out to the Lord, and this is his request. And then we have his sixth request there in verse 3. He says, For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. So, you know, there in verse 2, he had made the request for God to be his rock and fortress. And what do we see right away in verse 3? He immediately acknowledges and declares that that is true. <laughs> you are my rock and fortress. You are what I've just asked for. And so we see him putting faith. There's faith acting there in David's, already in David's request because he knew God was his rock and fortress. Then he goes on, though, to make this other request, which is lead me and guide me. You know, I think this is a simple and pro but yet profound request here in this trial that David's going through. Here David's in the midst of the pressure. He's in the midst of a very great amount of pressure, and we're going to see that when we get further down in just a moment. Yet he asked this of the Lord, and I think it's important not to miss it, you know, that he's taking the time to ask him, to ask the Lord to lead and guide him. Spurgeon says this about this. It says, he said, to lead and to guide are two things very like each other, but patient thought will detect different shades of meaning especially as the last may mean provide for me. The double word indicates an urgent need. We require double direction, for we are fools, and the way is rough. And so you're in the midst of a trial, and the temptation can be to try to figure it out for yourself and try to figure out the way of escape. And David wisely here pauses and says, Lord, lead me and guide me. 
You know, how often do we think of making this type of request when we're in a trial? How often we do we stop and think, well, wait a second, I need the Lord to lead me and guide me in this. We can remember to pray, Lord, deliver me. We usually don't forget to ask for that, right? But this thing of asking the Lord to lead and guide us is something I think, at least in my own life, I can be quick to forget to do. And, you know, we need to do this because we know from what the Lord has told us in the New Testament, God has a purpose in our trials. He has a purpose for them. And without him leading and guiding us, I think we can miss what God wants to do in the trials we're going through. We can be all focused on the trial, all focused on escaping it, and we can miss it if we're not asking the Lord to lead and guide us through it and to help us to know how he wants to change us and, and make us stronger and how he wants to get glory for his name. You know, Pastor Troy has shared it many times, but I love the quote from Joni Erickson, Tata, and, you know, she's talking about, Lord, teach me to be a steward of my suffering. And I think that's this thing of lead and guide me, Lord. <laughs> I'm suffering I need you to lead and guide me through it, though, so that you get the glory. So stop, stop and pause in trial and ask the Lord to do that for you. And then <clears throat> verse 4, we see David ask again for another request. And um, he says, pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. And so David just simply asked the Lord to deliver him from the trap of his enemies. And Again, another important request because, you know, a lot of times we can try to figure our own way out. You know, the enemy can be pressing in and we can try to make our own plans. He, but David wasn't doing that here. He was depending on the Lord to give him the cunning and the strength to, to get out of the trap the enemy was setting for him. He was trusting in the Lord and not his own strength. And, um, you know, there's many examples, I think, of this in David's life. One of them comes to my mind of, um, in his days of, of running from Saul, there was a time where he delivered this city that was uh, under siege by the Philistines, and he and his men delivered them and set them free. Yet he heard Saul was coming. He heard Saul that had found out he was there and was coming to capture him. And so David could have depended on his own wisdom, you know, and just said, well, of course these people are going to protect me, right? I just delivered them. But instead, we see him in that example, we see him ask the Lord, what is going to happen? What are they going to do? And the Lord revealed to him that they would hand him over to Saul. And so David and his men got out of there, and they left. And so David didn't depend on his own wisdom. He trusted in the Lord. He looked to the Lord for, for what to do and how to handle the trap. So we begin this psalm with just these requests, you know, again, I see seven requests that David makes of the Lord here at the beginning of the psalm and the trial that he's in. Now we come to verses 5 through 8, and we see confidence and joy despite the trial. Confidence and joy despite the trial. And I think right away in verses 5 and 6, uh, I mean, sorry, verse 5, we see complete confidence. David says there, "...to your hand I commit my spirit." You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Psalm uh, 31.5, and he's, he's calling out to the Lord. He's saying, uh, into your hand I commit my spirit. And for most of us, we should probably think, well, that sounds familiar. And it, it should sound familiar because it's what Jesus uttered on the cross. In Luke 23, verse 46, it says, When Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And so David saying this, I see it as just complete trust in the Lord. He is committing the deepest part of himself to God's care. It was everything that David had. It was his spirit. It was his very life. He says, Lord, I commit this into your hands, into your trust. And now Peter picks up on the same theme in 1 Peter 4.19. 1 Peter 4.19. And there Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And so Peter there telling us to do what David is doing here in this psalm, committing his soul to the Lord. And Paul said something very similar near the end of his life in 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. And so Saul, I mean, Paul had committed to the Lord his soul. And that's what David is doing in this psalm. He's entrusting the most precious part of himself, to the Lord's care and to the Lord's hands. And, you know, only God is worthy of being trusted with something that precious. There's nothing more precious than our soul. And we see David here entrusting it to God and trusting him to take care of him. Um, You know, David, in contrast, in verse 6, you know, he says, I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. You know, David was trusting in God, not the useless idols like those around him were. And that's what we're called to do is Lord, just completely trust the Lord with our soul and with everything that we have. And so complete confidence, the trials raging in his life. And David has complete confidence in the Lord and in his care. And verses 7 and 8, I think we see gladness and rejoicing. David says, I, was glad, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy for you have considered my trouble You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. And you just, as you're reading this, you're like, wait, why is David talking about being glad and rejoicing? I thought he was in the middle of a trial here. Um, And he is in the middle of a trial, but yet he's rejoicing. He's, He's rejoicing in who the Lord is. He's rejoicing in God's mercy there, we see. He he rejoices in that. And um And how had he seen God's mercy? There's two things he lists. One is he knew God had considered his trouble. He knew God was aware of his trouble. And so he was rejoicing in that. And he also knew that God had not forsaken him. You know, that God was with him. He says there in verse 7 at the end, he says, You have known my soul in adversities. And, you know, I love this about the Lord. You know, this is an important truth is that the Lord has known, knew his soul, and he knows our soul in our adversities. The Lord knows what's going on in our lives. You know, the Lord hadn't abandoned him when things got tough. And the Lord doesn't abandon us when things get tough. He knows us in our adversities. He doesn't say, you know, good luck. <laughs> good luck getting through this and, he, and leave us to our devices. No, he's there with us. Hebrews 13.5 reminds us of this. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the Lord, you know, knows us in our adversities. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us, no matter how severe the trial is. 
and he, and he knows what's going on. And that's why 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And so the Lord cares for you tonight. He knows the, if you have adversities going on, he knows what they are. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you to yourself. He's there ready and willing to care for you. And with such great detail, I was, I was thinking and reading and thinking about this, you know, I was reminded of Jesus and what he said about that the Father knows the number of hairs on our head, right? I mean, that's a lot of detail, that he knows the numbers that are, of hairs that are there. And that was Jesus expressing to us that God knows us in detail. He cares about us, and he's aware of what's happening. And so David has a right to rejoice, even though the trial's raging. He has a right to rejoice and be glad because the Lord is with him. The Lord knows him. The Lord is showing him mercy. And that's why David is rejoicing, even though the trial is raging on. This brings us to verses 9 through 13 and the trial described. And so let me just read these verses again, and we'll talk a little bit about what's going on here. David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. I'm a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. And so we see here the first two verses, 9 and 10, I think the trouble from within. You know, David is under immense pressure as he's describing it here. And he simply there in verse 9 again cries out to the Lord, Have mercy, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. You know, I'm in trouble, Lord, and I need you to show me mercy. And we see in these verses, though, and again, it's not clear. I mentioned this earlier. It's not clear here. He mentions sin, and, the, and I think the struggle within is him dealing with the sin. And it's not exactly clear whether it's current sin or past sin. And I kind of lean toward to that, the fact of it being something from the past that the Lord's already forgiven him of. And yet he's still dealing with remembering it and dealing with the the suffering from that and the guilt and the shame. And, I'm, of course, the enemy, I'm sure, was gladly accusing him and reminding him of his failure. And so we see that battle within raging in David's life. And, you know, the enemy loves to do the same thing to us. He loves to take when we fail and fall. It's interesting when you think about it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, you know, the enemy dangles that temptation out in front of you, and if he gets you to take it and fall then he just unceasingly beats you up over it. It's like it's such a dastardly thing that he does to us, right? He's like, here, come take this. And then he wants to just keep beating you up for your failure and for falling and reminding you of it. And so I kind of think that's what's happening here. David's dealing with the grief. So first of all, it's a good reminder to us, right, that sin has consequences. Yes, the Lord, and we're going to talk about in a second the Lord's forgiveness, but when we stumble and fall into sin, the pain and suffering that comes from it afterwards is not worth what the enemy is offering to us. And it's important for us, I think, to rehearse in our minds when we're being tempted with, this, with sin is, what is going to be the consequences of this? How much pain and suffering am I going to endure 
if I give in to this temptation? How much regret, how much agony am I going to go through? And so I think that's what's happening here with David. But we know uh, from several places, and just a couple I want to remind us of, Psalm 103, verse 12. This is, again, talking about the Lord and how he deals with our sin. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sin, your sins. And so that's what the Lord does. When we come and ask the Lord for forgiveness, they're cast away. They're forgotten. And so the last thing the Lord wants us to do is to dwell on those things and to beat ourselves up over them. If we've repented of them, that's over with. It's behind us. And we're not supposed to sit there and let that condemnation and let that just dwell on it. It does not uh, bring God any glory for us to do that. He wants us to let, leave it in the past, and that's what he's done with it. And that's what the Lord wants us to do with it. So this is this internal struggle, you know. And perhaps, you know, David's thinking about it because he's in this trial, and he's feeling like, well, I'm in this trial because of my failure. And the enemy loves to do that too, right? He's like, it's your fault. You're going through a trial because you sinned. And not all trials are because we sinned. I mean, and that, again, you know, Job, that was what his mistake his friends made, right? They came to him, and the only solution they had for Job was, you've done something. You've done something. And the fact was, he had done nothing, and he was in that trial. And so David here, I think perhaps that's what's going on, is the enemy's trying to say, look, this is your fault, and because it's your fault, your sin, you can't call out to God to help you. You deserve this. And so what are you doing calling out to God for help? And yet we see David doing the right thing. We see him calling out to the Lord for help. So verses 11 through 13, we see the trouble from outside. You know, David's situation is so bad that even his neighbors and friends want nothing to do with him. They run the other way when they see him. And so David feels forgotten. He says that very thing in verse 12, I'm forgotten. And he feels useless. You know, he says, I'm like a broken vessel. A broken vessel was something that was of no use. And so David is in a pretty low spot right now. He feels forgotten and he feels useless. And so he's pretty vulnerable because this is where the enemy wants us to get at, right? He wants us to get in this condition and feel like there is no hope and feel like we're all alone and that we're useless and that all is lost. And that's where David is at the moment. Um, all he hears, he goes on to talk about there in verse uh, 13, all he hears is the slander of many. Everywhere he turns, there's fear on every side because the enemy is scheming to do something pretty bad. It says to take away his life. David was, his physical life was threatened. And so, and no one wants anything to do with him. You know, in these verses, it certainly sounds like David is alone. And it is possible that was the case, that humanly speaking, he was alone. But I tend to think that probably there was at least a few who were still standing with him, who still cared about him. And, if, and you know, sometimes, though, when we hear the slander and we hear the attacks and the negative things from people in our lives, that can be the only thing we hear. And we can focus totally on that, despite the fact there's that one person 
or two people in our lives that are there encouraging us and, and building us up. We don't hear that. We feel like, well, I'm all alone. All I'm hearing is the negative attacks. And it's interesting how those negative words weigh so much more in our minds than the words of encouragement that God's using others to speak into our lives. And so, I don't know, maybe he was all alone, but I think it is good to think about the fact that we do tend to focus too much on those negative words and can ignore those people that God's put in our life to encourage us. And, you know, as the body of Christ, we always have people around us that God wants to use to speak into our lives. And that's why it's so important for us to be together, because we need those words of encouragement, because the world wants to tear us down. The enemy wants us to feel alone. He wants us to feel isolated. So what does David do? There's the struggle, verses 9 through 13. He's struggling with remembrance of his past sin. He's feeling forgotten. He's feeling useless. On top of that, his enemies are after his life. So what does David do? And we see there in verse 14, this beautiful transition where he says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. This is the circumstances. They're bad. But as for me, I trust in you. The trial was so great. Again, as I mentioned, his life was in jeopardy. But despite the trial, he makes this declaration. He determines, decides, I trust in you, Lord, but I trust in you. And this is an example of faith. This is a really beautiful example of faith. You know, things don't look good. Things are bad. And I don't know how you're going to work it out, David says, but I trust you. I trust you. And this is what the Lord desires from our lives. He desires us to trust him in this way. Uh, one commentator I came across, I think, to me said something interesting about the trust. He says, it is so easy to explain the word trust. It is not so difficult to believe that the Almighty God is able to help out of every trouble. But to be sure, the Lord will and wishes to help likewise me and thee in every affliction in which we have fallen for the sake of his honor. That will only be learned, that will only be learned and exercised by true and manifold experience. So he's saying it's easy to believe that God Almighty can deliver people. It's easy to believe that God would want to help someone. What comes difficult is when we're in a trial is believing that he'd want to help me, that he'd want to deliver me. Because again, the enemy can come with those thoughts of unworthiness and we don't deserve it and it's our fault that we're here. But experience in the trial can help us to learn that God wants to help you too, <laughs> no matter where or why you're in the trial that you're in. So David makes this declaration, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. And then verse 15, so first in verse 14, his trust is in his God. Verse 15, his trust is in God's sovereignty. He says there, my times are in your hand. And, and this is a beautiful phrase. David recognized God's sovereignty in his trial. God was in control. And David recognized that despite of how bad things look. He says, my times are in your hands. Another commentator on this said, my times, i.e. all my life, which it, with its sundry and manifold changes, its joys and sorrows, its hopes and conflicts, are not the sport of chance or the creatures of blind fate, but are in thy hand, O, o thou living personal redeemer. And so as a believer as one who walks with the Lord, 
we can have confidence that our times are, are in his hands. We're not just, it's not just some random things out of, out of control that's happening to us. Our times are in the hands of the Lord. And Spurgeon says this about, he says, if we believe that our times are in God's hands, we shall be expecting great things from our Heavenly Father. When we get into a difficulty, we shall say, I am now going to see the wonders of God and to learn again how surely he delivers them that trust in him. And so Spurgeon there reminding us that if we truly believe that our times are in God's hands, then we're going to be looking for what God's going to do. We're going to be looking at the trial with expectation of God doing something, not with drudgery, oh, woe is me, um, what's going to happen? No, it's going to be, wow, my times are in the hands of the Lord. And because my times are in his hands, I need to step back and just watch, what is he going to do? How is he going to deliver? What is he going to teach me through this trial? So David was trusting in his God. He was trusting in his God's sovereignty. And we see in verse 16, he was trusting God's favor and mercy. Um, you know, David there, verse 16, make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. And, and he, back in verse 17, he hearkens back to what he said earlier in the, in the psalm. He says, do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. And so David's trust here is in God's favor and in his mercy. That's why he says, make your face shine upon your servant. That's just simply David's desire was that God's favor would be upon him. That's what that, that phrase, hit God's face shining upon him, was the favor of God. That's what David was looking for. And he was looking, again, for the mercy of God. And again, just trusting that God would help just because God was merciful, not because of David deserving it. And then we see in verses 17 and 18, we see trust. His trust was in calling upon God. And, you know, David says there in verse 17, O Lord, for I have called upon you. And so David was trusting in the fact that it was God he had called upon. He had called upon the true living God to deliver him. That's where his trust was at. And so he was confident that despite, again, all that was going on, that God would deliver, that God would help him through the trial. So these are the things we see him trusting in. And this brings us to verses 19 through 22, where David just really begins to praise God. And it's not clear whether the trial was fully over yet or not, but David just begins to give praise to God. And he gives praise to God for some very specific things. In verse 19, he praises God for his goodness. He says, oh, how great is your goodness. Um, and, you know, I think, I just want to take a pause just for a moment on this phrase, goodness. And if you could actually just start turning over to Exodus 33, um, and we're going to read there in Exodus 33 and a little bit in Exodus 34. I love this phrase in this verse, though, the goodness of God. And I just want to think about this for just a moment before we go on. Um, Psalm 31:19 in the New Living Translation, before we go to the Exodus passage, though, this verse reads this way. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection blessing them before the watching world. And so I love the way the New Living Translation translates that. You know, it says that God lavishes his goodness upon those who come to him for protection. God isn't stingy with his goodness towards us. 
He lavishes upon us. He's looking to do this. He's waiting for people like us to just trust him so that he can lavish his goodness upon us. Now, that same word goodness, that's a Hebrew word that's translated as goodness there in Psalm 31, is also the same Hebrew word that's in Exodus 33:19. And so Exodus 33:19, it says, then he said, I will make all my goodness, this is God speaking, pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so Moses had made this request to see the glory of the Lord. And this is God's response to him there in Exodus 33, 19. And then down in Exodus 34, <clears throat> 5 through 7, we see God do what he said he was going to do there in verse 19. It says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so <clears throat> what is the goodness of God that David is talking about in Psalm 31? Well, I think it's described for us here in the book of Exodus. The goodness of God, as God uh, describes it to Moses here, is his compassion, it's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his long-suffering. It, it, and these are, these are the things that are the goodness of God. These are the things that the Lord wants to lavish upon our lives if we trust, look to him for protection, and we put our trust in him. He wants to lavish these things upon us. In verse 7 of Exodus 34, <clears throat> we see the word goodness in the New King James as well, but that's not the same Hebrew word that is in uh, Exodus 33 and in Psalm 31. It's a different Hebrew word. And that word, though, that word goodness, that Hebrew word, means loyal love. It's an unfailing kind of love, kindness or goodness, often used of God's love that is related to faithfulness to his covenant. And so God's goodness, his <clears throat> part of it is his unfailing love towards us and his faithfulness to his promises he has made promises to us that he's not going to alter. He's not going to back down on. He's going to fulfill them. So <clears throat> these are the good things that the Lord, this is his goodness that he has for us, that he's waiting to lavish upon our lives. So, <clears throat> so David there back in Psalm 31 is saying, oh, how great is your goodness. And <clears throat> David also praises God in verse 20 for his protection. Um, there were those who were slandering David, as we already saw earlier, and scheming to harm him. Yet David realized he was safe. And he says there in verse 20, you shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of men. You shall keep them secretly, uh, you keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. And that word pavilion <clears throat> is an interesting word. It just simply means a shelter. And what's interesting to me about it is it's a word that describes a shelter that's temporary. And it was used of a, a, a temporary shelter kind of out in the field that would be built to protect man or, or animals from the sun. And it, but it was something that was temporary. And I find that interesting. And I, you know, I was, I'm not you know, exactly sure why the word is used, but I was thinking, you no, know, maybe it's just a reminder 
as David is thinking of even himself, that the Lord's going to shelter him. He's going to put him in shelter temporarily because this trial isn't going to last forever. It's going to pass. It's not going to go on for eternity. And so he only needed protection for a short time from it. And so, again, a temporary shelter um, that God was providing and protecting him with. And then David, in verses 20 through, 21 and 22, David praises for God hearing him. Now, David there declares that God had showed him marvelous kindness. How had God shown him marvelous kindness? He did this by hearing David's cry for help. And that's what David declares here in those verses. And as we spoke of earlier in the psalm, David had asked that God would bend down, bow down his ear to him. And David now is rejoicing that God has done that. God has heard his cry for help. So <clears throat> David's rejoicing in that. And so in the midst of this praise, I think, though, David shares a, raw, a moment of raw honesty. And we see that in verse 22. It says, For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Um, <clears throat> he acknowledges here in this moment of praise that there was a moment of doubt and fear that led him to hastily say, God doesn't see me. <laughs> God doesn't see me. And, and the fear overwhelmed him, and he succumbed to it for a moment. And I appreciate that that's there, you know? I mean, because sometimes when we read these who have gone before us, we can be like, well, I, I can't live that way. You know, I have doubts at times. I struggle, and we can beat ourselves up for that. But David here acknowledges he had them too. And yet God in his mercy didn't say, I'm done with you because you had this doubt, forget you. No, David declares God answered. Despite my doubt, God still heard my cry. And, you know, I encourage you to sometime in the coming days to go over to Matthew 11 and Luke 7 and just read about John the Baptist and his lapse of faith. I mean, John the Baptist had a lapse of faith. He sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, tell, go back and tell him what you've seen, what you see happening. And I find it interesting that John the Baptist asked that question, because isn't he the guy who heard the Father speak from heaven when Jesus was baptized by him and say, this is my beloved son? He heard that. And yet John is doubting, are you really the one? Because his circumstances were so severe. He was, he was in jail, and he's like, where's the deliverance? If Jesus is the Messiah, I should be delivered. And so that's why he's questioning it. And it's interesting, after his disciples go away back to him, Jesus turns around and continues to talk, and he says of John that there is none greater born among women than him. And why do I bring that up? I bring that up because there's John doubting, having a lapse of faith. And yet Jesus says there's none greater born among women than him. And so the Lord doesn't cast us off when we struggle. I mean, you know, the guy, one of the men who came to Jesus said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. The Lord can work. <laughs> we, we, we can bring it to him. Lord, I'm struggling to believe. Help me. And the Lord will help us. He doesn't just want to cast us to the side. And so <clears throat> David was rejoicing that the Lord heard his cry despite his lapse of faith. And so that brings us to these last two verses here verses 23 and 24. And I call this an exhortation from experience. So David had lived this trial. He had 
called out to the Lord as we've seen, and we've seen his struggles, and we've seen his dependence upon the Lord and his rejoicing in who the Lord is and in the mercy of the Lord. And what does David exhort us to do? Well, in verse 23, he exhorts us simply, love the Lord. He just exhorts us, love the Lord. He's worthy of our love. He says he will preserve those who are faithful. The Lord is going to preserve us. And so David just simply says, here's a man who's lived it, who knows the experience of going through trials and looking to the Lord, and his word to us is just love the Lord, just love him. And then his second exhortation to us is have courage, there in verse 24. Have courage because he will strengthen the heart of those who hope in him. Be strong and have courage because he will strengthen the heart of those who hope in him. That phrase there, hope in the Lord, um, is, and the word hope is a verb, and the sense of the word is to wait, look forward, to look forward to the occurrence of or arrival of. And so we're being exhorted by David to look forward to the arrival of the Lord in our circumstances. Be of courage. The Lord is going to arrive. He's going to show up. And don't lose heart. Isaiah 25, 9 says, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so may we be those whose hope is in the Lord, who are of good courage, who are willing to wait on the Lord, because the Lord will not forsake us. He will come through, and he will strengthen our hearts. So <clears throat> the worship team can start coming up. Um, but in conclusion here, you know, I just want to encourage you, you know, maintain your trust in the Lord. May this psalm be an encouragement to you to do that. And another encouragement I have to you, if, if you're in a trial or the next time a trial comes, is do what David did here. Just pour your heart out to the Lord. You know, too often when trials come, we're quick to want to pour our heart out to a friend about our trial or to a family member. But, you know, only God can help us when we're in the midst of a trial. And there is a great peace and deliverance that comes from just pouring out your heart to the Lord and allowing him to minister to you. And then humbly seek God for help, but not only for deliverance, seek him to lead and guide you through the trial when the trial's there. Ask him for direction. Ask him to lead you. And lastly, put your complete trust in him. You know, you, again, will never be ashamed for having done that. You'll never regret trusting the Lord. He's worthy of every bit of trust that we place in him. So there are going to be people up here to pray. Let's stand, and I'm going to close in prayer. And, you know, we want to pray for you. If you're struggling in a trial today, if you want to see your faith grow, um, let us pray for you. We would love to do that. And uh, so let's close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for, Lord, the examples that have gone before us, Lord. I thank you that, Lord, David was a real man, and he had real struggles and faced real trials. And, Lord, tonight we've seen, Lord, by your grace, how you helped him to walk through that, how you helped him to call upon your name. And, Lord, I pray tonight for my brothers and sisters in this room and those maybe listening online, Lord, that, Lord, in our trials, Lord, we would call upon you, that we would pour our hearts out to you, Lord, that we would have faith and trust, and Lord, that we would know even with moments of doubt, Lord, you don't cast us off. 
Lord, that you are there to give us strength. And so, Lord, may we be those found waiting and hoping in you. Lord, knowing that, Lord, we will never be ashamed. We will never regret doing that. So, Lord, thank you for your word, God. Thank you for the way you speak to us. And I pray that you just continue to speak to us, Lord, as we dwell on these things. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.